0: music sweet i wanna feel my impulse Be take it off the e string play it on the g string if this gives you a thrill it's happening much against my will and only cause i've caught a chill take it off the e string play it on the g string Welcome to episode 62 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. When I'm reading about women who are in showbiz during the Depression, I always have an eye out for a Sassmouth Dame unit of measure. How did they feel sure that the wolf wasn't at the door? At what point did women feel they made it? Barbara Stanwyck once said she just wanted to survive and eat and have a nice coat. For Ann Miller, she felt if she could go shopping whenever she was blue, then she was on her way up again, no matter even if it put her in debt. For Joan Crawford, success meant that she could compensate for a deprived childhood. The first thing she did was to fill a home with 2,000 dolls. She later jettisoned the dolls when she decided she wanted taste, not toys. Ginger Rogers had a real ice cream parlor. Uh, installed in her home and after rehearsing for eight hours a day with Fred Astaire and often filming another production at night she earned those chocolate malts. One of the first things Jean Tierney splashed out on was an $80 crocodile handbag. Her father gave out to her for the purchase but then he proceeded to lose her earnings on bad investments Jean still had the lovely bag long after her father was planted six feet under. Lana Turner had a bespoke credenza made to house her jewelry collection, both real stones next to inexpensive costume pieces. For Mary Astor, it was a separate home away from her mother and father, who emotionally battered her for years. For Gypsy Rose Lee, she had a more immediate slide rule for what her success in showbiz should bring to her on a daily level, that she would never have to answer her own door again, or her phone, for that matter. Gypsy wanted security, a gatekeeper, somebody between her and the yowling masses. Initially, she paid a woman to do it. And later, she had her son, Eric, answer the door in her phone. For a woman hounded by fans, the press, and hangers-on, she needed a buffer. In 1940, Gypsy had finished a smash run in a show produced by Mike Todd for the World's Fair. Gypsy had been a star in burlesque since the start of the 1930s. But this was the biggest and most dazzling show that she had starred in to date. A 40-foot cutout of Gypsy stood over the fairgrounds, which she often remarked was bigger than Stalin's. She made $4,000 a week to star in the streets of Paris. More than 11,000 people bought a ticket each week to see her show. Gypsy wasn't even 30 years old, and already she was a legend. After the show wrap, though, she was restless and looked for a new challenge. She had long talked about writing a mystery novel set in the world of burlesque. Gypsy turned her idea into a best-selling novel, which was later adapted to the big screen as Lady of Burlesque in 1943. Hunt Stromberg chose Gypsy's novel as his first project as an independent producer once he fell out with Louis B. Mayer and left Metro Studio. The picture stars Barbara Stanwyck, was directed by William Wellman, and it was their fifth time working together. James Gunn adapted Gypsy's murder mystery to the screen. Lady of Burlesque gives viewers an epic sass dames crossover. Stanwyck and Gypsy could have launched a rocket to the moon, powered by their combined wit and work ethic. In 1943, Gypsy Rose Lee was one of the most famous women in America and Barbara Stanwyck became the highest-paid woman in the States during the following year in 1944. Stanwyck commanded $400,000 as a freelance star in Hollywood. Both women shared a unique skill, the ability to consign men to the shadows with the sheer power of their presence. They were each devoted bibliophiles. They inhaled books like cigarettes to make up for a lack of formal education. Gypsy and Barbara were self-made, self-educated, and driven perhaps by the idea that work was the ultimate salvation. It was the only proof that they had that they would never return to poverty. At one point, trooping around with her mother, when the act was old and outdated and vaudeville dried up, she had many hungry days and nights. Sometimes Gypsy and her mother ate pet food. Barbara Stanwyck was shuttled around in foster care and began working at full time to support herself when she was only 14 years old. When Stanwyck joined the chorus line, she ran around New York City in her smalls with only a top coat on from theater to theater to pack in as many routines as she could into an evening, sometimes eight in total. Stanwyck spent several years as a quarrying in the Ziegfeld Follies, She was well familiar with the backstage shenanigans that Gypsy brings to life in a finely crafted murder mystery, the G-String Murders. Legend has it that producer Hunt Stromberg had an informal poll conducted around major cities which revealed few people knew what a G-String was. Most thought it referred to musical scales. Hence, the production had the change of name to Lady of Burlesque. Gypsy was paid $25,000 for the film rights. This story sounds good, but it also feels more like a public relations spin on a basic concession to the production code office of Joseph Breen and his minions. The novel was a bestseller, so a large audience would already get the reference. In his production code administration notes, Joseph Breen objected to the undergarment used as a murder weapon. He thought it would be offensive to an audience. It's likely that his objection extended to its use in the film's title, and made the change necessary. A change in title goes in tandem with changing the heroine's name from Gypsy Rose Lee to Dixie Daisy. The production code scolds; would not even allow Gypsy to use her real her stage name when she was under contract to Twentieth Century Fox. The censors believed her name alone was synonymous with illicit sex, so for her film credits, she went as Louise. Barbara Stanwyck should have won an Oscar just for her six-pack abs. Had any of the men in the audience, who were called jerkers in the novel, thrown coins at Barbara Stanwyck on stage, her chiseled abdomen would have shot them back and put their eyes out. What Adrian did for Joan Crawford's shoulders, Edith Head does for Barbara Stanwyck's long, sinewy torso in this picture. Instead of playing it down with an empire waist, she elongates Stanwyck even more in crop tops. Between her bra and waistline stretches an acre of washboard midriff. Stanwyck's physique is so strong and vital, she leaves other strip teasers in the orchestra pit. Stanwyck could roll out a fleet of biscuits with her abs. She could polish precious stones on them during a smoke break, or crack walnuts to roast over a fire. With the strength of her core, she could have crushed a whalebone corset like it was nothing more than a beer can. Barbara Stanwyck could have ended Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak with one bump from her midriff— and had more stopping power with it than any catcher's mitt. Just before she begins her specialty number as the headliner, Stamwick as Dixie Daisy looks out into the, into the audience. In a brief reaction take, she tells us everything we need to know about the character's attitude towards striptease. Stamwick rolls her tongue along her teeth and sucks on her teeth. It's the wind-up before the pitch. She'll make short work of the mob who leer, judge, or scoff at a hard-working dame who never really gives anything away. She's above them. They can't touch her in any sense. In her own voice, spiced with nicotine and roasted coffee beans, Stanwyck sings Take It Off the E-string, Play It on the G-string, with the camera diverted for the bumps and grind she uses to accentuate her routine. Stanwyck's costume, by Edith Head, uses strategic strips of fabric and sheer chiffon to suggest an amount of skin without inflaming the censors. She swishes around in the crop top and skirt with a fluffy muff in front to tantalize an audience as the clothes disappear. Without any actual stripping, the showgirl costumes are fun and flashy, full of gimmicks that each woman used when she took to the stage. The supporting players are a delight. The backstage banter is to die for. It's the best part of the film. Each moment the male comics are on screen, you feel robbed of the main attraction. Hard working dames, the lot of them, with courage, humor, grudges, and accumulated trade secrets worth their weight in gold. Gigi Graham, played by Iris Adrian, slugs from a bottle of gin with as much flair as Hamlet with Yorick's skull. L- Lolita Laverne, played by um, Victoria Faust, contrasts her nasal Brooklyn wine with a carefully trained opera voice, which shows aspirations for a stage further uptown. Marion Martin, as the lisping Alice Angel, baby-voiced and built like a brick house, wears a cat costume and is utterly adorable. Then there's the Princess Nirvana, played by Stephanie Batchelor, who puts over a Garbo impression for the books. The only striptease shown on camera is the one from the princess, who stands with a regal sneer as a Cossack with a whip snaps off bits of her costume piece by piece from across the stage. She's the type from Canarsie, who pronounces Toledo Toledo. She's better with the accent than Ginger Rogers in Roberta or Norma Shearer in Idiot's Delight. Michael O'Shea plays the character based on the burlesque comic Rags Raglan, who is Gypsy's first love. Curious about him, I watched Meet the People made in 1944 starring Lucille Ball just to see him. He has an early dance number, and all I could think of was, oh, Gypsy, no, before I hit the stop button. It was a cringeworthy Jimmy Legs dance number that renders him a buffoon. Like I said, I'm impatient during the love angle scenes because all the real energy occurs between the women backstage. But there's one scene between Stanwyck and Michael O'Shea that's staged to be a take on Romeo and Juliet that's a real standout. Stanwyck's Dixie exits through the dressing room window and crosses over the roof to apologize to the men working in the Chinese restaurant across the way. The comic calls out to her from the window above, telling her what a vision she is under moonlight. Shoulders thrown back the sequence of her costume sparkling, Stanwyck accepts his tribute like she is all three aspects of the moon combined. He says she looks so good he would like to rope her with his lasso. Granting him the opportunity to lavish praise, she turns, drops her voice deep yet soft, and asks him what he would do when he caught her. Four different things lie behind her response, A challenge, a tease, a threat, and a promise. Anything you say to a goddess under the moon carries weight, and he better make it good. Stanwyck is firm with him, but softens over time, rather like when she wore a crop top and seduced Henry Fonda with a change of shoes and the right perfume in the Lady Eve. They should only be so lucky. The picture is a cracking adaptation of Gypsy's novel. The banter is sublime, and it captures a world with a throbbing pulse powered by real women. In the opening scene, the theater owner, Foss, played by J. Edward Bromberg, based on Billy Minsky, declares that it was the Goyles who kept the place open. If not for the women who found an art of undress, the industry, the theater industry, would have folded. It's a lovely tribute to hardworking sassmouth dames. Born Ellen June, then renamed Rose Louise Hovick two years later, when her blonde and blue eyed sister was born, Gypsy Rose Lee started out at the, as the back end of a cow on stage and then reinvented a dying art form when she was only a teenager. She often said that Gypsy, the musical production which became a picture starring Natalie Wood and Rosalind Russell, was her monument. It was the fable she approved with all the gory bits edited out. But Gypsy Rose Lee had another piece of art that could have proudly considered her monument, her first novel, The G-String Murders. If you look at what people have written about the murder mystery, you'll see men trip over themselves to claim that Gypsy had a ghostwriter, that she does not deserve an author credit for the book. But that simply isn't true. For her biography of Gypsy, Karen Abbott consulted the subject's collected papers that are housed in the New York Public Library. Abbott viewed extensive drafts and revisions that proved Gypsy's authorship for the G-string murders. In her book, February House, Cheryl Tippin's study of a house in Brooklyn which became a writer's commune on the eve of the Second World War traces the birth of Gypsy's novel. The house on 9 Mita Street, near the Brooklyn Docks, was the brainchild of George Davis, who had written a critically revered first novel, and then was unable to follow up his initial success. When Gypsy first met him, he was working in a bookshop. Gypsy had retreated into books to escape the frenetic pace of the family's vaudeville act, Dainty June and Her Newsboy Songsters. Gypsy played one of the boys because Mama Rose felt having a second girl in the act would have detracted from June. Each time they landed in a new town, Gypsy escaped to the bookshops. After she spent a week browsing in the Seven Arts bookshop in Detroit where George Davis worked, he handed her a copy of Shakespeare's sonnets and asked if she had read it. Gypsy tried to hi-hat him, telling him that, him that as a member of the theater, she did not feel the need to read plays. George pressed the book on her hands and closed the subject by saying it was poetry, not a play. They began a friendship and exchanged letters. George Davis became the fiction editor at Harper's and made a name for himself publishing first-rate authors. Gypsy had become known around social circuits for her stories, especially those about the family vaudeville act. She had long toyed with the idea of writing a book. George invited her to Midda Street, a new scheme he had to develop writers in a commune of sorts after he left the magazine. The other writers um, already installed in the Victorian house were W. H. Auden, the British poet, and Carson McCullers, the southern wonderkin who had garnered praise for her novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. George had promised to work closely with Gypsy to bring editorial guidance to her book. Initially, he had contacted a ghostwriter to flesh out the novel, but when Gypsy received the ghostwriter's pages, she tore them up. No one else had her insider's knowledge for the burly Q circuit. George tried a different approach to develop Gypsy's writing process. He suggested that she begin by telling him the stories, which he took down and became the character sketches, the backstories for the murder mystery, about strippers who were strangled with their G-strings. Gypsy paced the sitting room of her two-room suite on Mida Street, drinking strong oolong tea and chain-smoking Turkish cigarettes. George sat at the typewriter and took it all down. At night, she would go back and revise the pages. She began to like what she saw. She could then build a bridge with revisions between an oral and written practice. Gypsy's confidence grew. Gypsy later said of her approach that she believed you should know who the characters are before you start killing them off. And that's one of the reasons the book was so successful. She has richly drawn characters, a lively setting, and an ear for dialogue that makes her book a real gem. Gypsy only spent a few months in the house, but by the time she left, having accepted another headlining show for Mike Todd, this time in Chicago... She had two chapters completed and a third on the way. The rest she wrote between performances backstage. In a way, Gypsy Rose Lee's fortunes turned on a dress. To be specific, an orange chiffon dress with ostrich feathers. In her memoir, she recalls how everything changed when Fanny Bryce, the famous comic and singer, needed a teenage girl for a small part in her act, someone to play a girl gone wrong. Since Gypsy had been playing a boy on stage for years, she had nothing that would fit the role of a wild party girl. Fanny called her wardrobe woman over for the loan of a gown. When Gypsy unfolded the dress that Fanny Bryce handed to her, Gypsy wrote that it was so glamorous, it made her vision blur. She abandoned the modesty and shame she felt over the ugly woolen long underwear she wore and tore her clothes off in front of Fanny and her dresser. Gypsy said a silent prayer as she put it on that the dress would fit. Then Fanny gave her a pair of heels to step into, and the transformation was complete. After years of Mama Rose ordering her to dress like a boy because a second girl in the act would have detracted from June, finally someone gave her something beautiful to wear. Gypsy only had five lines, but she delivered them with everything she had. The problem for young Louise was that she looked too good and no one looked at Fanny Bryce, so she was out of the act and back in the lumpy boys' clothes. The rivalry between Gypsy and June was cultivated for years by Mama Rose from the time they were toddlers. While the vaudeville act held together, June was the star and Mama Rose ignored Louise, But once the Danny June Act became a laughingstock because the girl grew too old to play a baby, the tables turned. Her sister June had written that when they were trooping around with the family act, Gypsy doodled in a notebook the word money in large decorative letters. In print or in interviews, June remained convinced that Gypsy cared most for filthy lucre. She said that when Gypsy met producer Mike Todd, it was money at first sight. But that seems unfair and inaccurate. Mercenary, sure, but no more so than any ambitious woman of the time. And I would much rather work in burlesque than not get into a bed for five months at a stretch, as June did when she gave up sleep in those dance marathons she endured seven times over, as I told you about in a previous episode. Gypsy once had the opportunity for every material comfort she could ever desire when she was a girl. An aunt and uncle in Seattle had lost their daughter, who died unexpectedly when she was 12 years old. They were keen to adopt Louise. Mama Rose was about to consent, thinking about the relief she would have if she only had one mouth to feed. The dead girl's bedroom was posh. When Louise looked at it. It was fit for a princess, ruffles as far as the eye could see. The carpet was as plush as a cricket pitch. Summers at a beach house she would have, even a pony if she wanted it. But Louise said no. She begged her mother not to give her up. She said she would try harder in the act. She would learn anything she wanted. She would prove she could be useful. In another story from Gypsy's memoir, she shares one of the biggest lessons she learned about what things cost and the difference between right and wrong. Once during their many countless motel stopovers, the beds were covered in pristine white wool blankets. Mama Rose coveted those blankets, telling little Louise that they would make beautiful coats for them. When they... Turned to leave, their their trunks were packed full, but Mama Rose was determined to steal the blankets. She counted out how many they would need and wrapped them around her midsection, with her large beaver coat worn on top to disguise the bulk. On their way out, Mama Rose stopped to argue over the bill at the front desk. She never missed an opportunity to save a few dollars if she could. Louise and June watched as their mother started gushing sweat, and the blankets started to unravel and peek out underneath the coat. At last, they managed to get away. As the family seamstress, Louise took the white wool blankets and made gorgeous wool coats with shawl collars for Mama Rose, June herself, and even one for her pet monkey, Gigolo. Her constant companion, Gigolo was a source of affection and comfort for Louise when she was ignored a second to June in her mother's grand scheme of things. One night, Louise put Gigolo in his little crate while he was still wearing his white coat. The next morning, she knew something was wrong as soon as she woke up. When she went to let him out, it was very quiet. Gigolo had gotten tangled up in his coat. It had strangled him in the night. When she she held his cold, limp body, she became hysterical. Rose sprang into action. She took the monkey away, and Louise never saw him again. Gypsy recalled that at that moment, she vowed she would never again take anything that did not belong to her, even if she felt she deserved it. Sometimes things cost too much. When June ran away with a boy from the act and got married when she was only 13, she probably did not realize what it meant for her older sister. Suddenly, the daughter Mama Rose tried to give away and had ignored for years was the sole breadwinner for the family. Mama Rose recruited a new act made entirely of young girls. On the road, their little cutesy infantilized routines went over like a lead balloon. The vaudeville circuit had been drying up for years thanks to talking pictures and radio. Gypsy, though, had a bright idea. It was the first of many creative decisions she made to garner publicity and an audience. Gypsy dunked each girl's hair in a mixture of peroxide and ammonia and turned them all platinum. The act was renamed Rose Louise and her Hollywood Blondes. Gypsy had kept her hair dark and remained the standout. As always, Louise made all the costumes for the act. She made extra money designing and sewing costumes on the vaudeville circuit for years. She made her own costumes for the stage until 1949. Eventually, the girl acts found work in burlesque houses as the legit act. They were most likely billed as a gag stooge routine to appease the reformers. Louise earned an advanced degree in burlesque studies under the generous tutelage of seasoned pros who made a living shaking it on stage. Although Gypsy chose her name and her profession much of the ugly stage mother mania she endured remains sanitized and softened in her books. A woman has the right to edit a positive spin on her life story. She doesn't owe the reader a litany of horrors that she endured. If she wants to take credit for launching herself in burlesque rather than having it foisted on her by her mother, so be it. Eric Lee Preminger, Gypsy's son with director Otto Preminger, recall that there was at least a year early on in his mother's burlesque career that she had buried deep in her memory, sealed away forever. It was likely a year of trauma and forced sex work backstage in the burlesque circuit before she became a headlining star. One of the most compelling reasons to read Karen Abbott's biography of Gypsy is for the interview she conducted with June Havoc before she died. June made it clear that Gypsy's memoir and the stage and film productions are a fable, that her sister's act could never have survived if she only had removed a glove and a dress strap. Karen Abbott's research showed that during the boom on Broadway, first-rate tickets went for $5.50. Across town at the same time, the Minsky brothers sold tickets for 25 cents to showcase comics who worked blue and women who made an art of the striptease. After the stock market crash, the marquees of prestigious theaters went dark until the Minsky brothers moved uptown to Broadway. They offered a revamped venue, with catwalks built off the stage into the audience, just like Billy Minsky had found in the burlesque houses of Paris. Patrons could see specialty acts and a nude chorus line for only a dollar. Men in the audience were willing to part with a dollar to fold a newspaper over their lap as they pleasured themselves of an evening or an afternoon. When Billy Minsky saw Gypsy's act, he knew he found a star. Under the self-chosen name of Gypsy Rose Lee, which she felt fit her clairvoyant gifts, her act was a recitation of poetry or a highbrow voiceover, while she blanked the men in the audience as though they weren't there. Gypsy used dressmakers' pins to strip rather than zippers, which she felt were artless and tawdry. As she undid her costume, Gypsy tossed the pins into the tuba below in the orchestra pit, which, when they fell, made a clinking noise. Later, she added gags to ramp up the drama of her routine. Gypsy would pay a woman in the audience to scream when she came to the last garment. She also would pay a waiter to drop a tray of glasses at an opportune moment. When men wrote about Gypsy's act... They marveled at her ability to act as though the men in the audience were invisible, as though she were alone on stage, unaware of their presence. H.L. Mencken paid Gypsy the honor of coining a term for her art. Mencken defined Gypsy as an ectiziest. Gypsy accepted his compliment. What's so interesting about her technique is that no doubt heightened the feeling of pleasure that men took in voyeurism, but it was also a way for Gypsy to render them meaningless. She was not naked on stage the way other strip teasers were. Perhaps it was a coping mechanism, but she managed to keep scorn embedded in an act that was supposed to leave Gypsy vulnerable to the male gaze. She was impervious, imperious, unknowable, and removed from their desire. Whatever the psychology of the exchange, it made Gypsy stand out a star. Minsky invited her to headline for $1,000 a week. Always a wit, Gypsy resisted the labels and the censure. When she was arrested after a raid... Gypsy declared that on stage, I wasn't naked, I was completely covered by a blue spotlight. Ever the genius at creating publicity, she made good copy, most of which had nothing to do with her method of striptease. Once she wore a long cape made entirely of orchids for opening night at the opera. Throughout her rise in fame, there, there was Mama Rose with her hand out. When her daughter didn't give her what she wanted or respond quickly enough, Mama Rose fed nasty stories to the press, who in turn squelched the stories because Gypsy always gave them good copy. In More Havoc, June's second memoir, she gives a wholly terrifying scene of Mama Rose on her deathbed. It told June everything she missed once she left the family act. At one point, Rose grabbed Gypsy and pulled her down onto the bed with her, chest to chest, locked in a horrible struggle. Rose's deathbed wish, she said, was to drag Gypsy with her. Then, for an added touch of maternal curse, she promised Gypsy that she would never forget the way she held her just then. Gypsy later tried to explain to June that June never held as much fascination for their mother because she never got the same kind of drama, the thrill that she had with Gypsy when they were loaded into a police car after a burlesque raid. Rose wanted nothing less than her daughter's life. And I sh- should note that she is buried without headstone, just grass over a plot. In Eric Lee Preminger's memoir, My G-String Mother, he pays tribute to the industry, energy, the creative spark his mother honed throughout her life. When she was 42 years old and felt too old to strip, she invented new ways to entertain an audience. She worked hard writing her memoir. She used her fame to get lucrative advertising campaigns and appearances. She learned how to edit over 24 hours of home movies into a show about her life called A Curious Evening with Gypsy Rose Lee." When she took over for Ethel Merman on stage in DuBerry Was a Lady and asked June for a review of her performance, June said that Gypsy wasn't ready yet, that she couldn't really sing or act. Gypsy bristled and replied that she didn't really need to know how to sing or act. She only needed to keep her strength up to carry all that money to the bank. Eric notes how she planned to release a record of the sparkling conversation she had at her dinner parties until guests became too shy of the microphones. Gypsy had a great success on stage playing Auntie Mame. And perhaps the highlight of her post-burlesque career was her daytime talk show aimed at women. On the show, Gypsy chatted about her facelifts, her son, her pets, her famous friends, and she always had great guests. I would pay a handsome price for a box set of her TV show. The short clips that are available on YouTube, Gypsy's energy is a whirlwind delight. If only Gypsy had treated Daryl Zanuck as though his last name were Minsky, she could have beaten the censors, who wouldn't let her use her own name and developed into a star on screen. The books that helped me write this episode are Gypsy by Gypsy Rose Lee, The G-String Murders by Gypsy Rose Lee, More Havoc by June Havoc, my G-String Mother by Eric Lee Preminger. American Rose, The Life and Times of Gypsy Rose Lee by Karen Abbott. February House, the story of W.H. Auden, Carson McCullers, Jane and Paul Bowles, Benjamin Britten, and Gypsy Rose Lee Under One Roof in Brooklyn by Cheryl Tippins. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 63 when I talk about Carol Lombard and Swing High, Swing Low from 1937. Thanks very much.